I'm Tavis Smiley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580, and we're glad about it. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. Here we are, trying to keep our heads to the sky. Um, in this hour, a conversation with noted scholar Dr. Lewis Gordon about nihilism. Speaking of keeping our heads to the sky. Uh, nihilism is the notion uh, which denies the existence of any objective meaning or purpose in life. A belief that can have a profound impact on individuals and communities that tend to experience oppression or marginalization. How then, in this hour, do black folk understand, experience, embody, and most importantly respond to the challenge of black nihilism? I expect a rich dialogue in this hour. Um, sometimes uh, these dots connect interestingly on this program, and uh, I did not realize that we would be fortunate enough to have two brilliant uh, black scholars back-to-back. Uh, we just had a, a brilliant one-hour conversation with Dr. Carol Anderson out of Emory, and now we're pleased to be um, <laughs> in a brilliant conversation with another great scholar, Dr. Lewis Gordon, who teaches at UConn, where he's professor and head of the philosophy department. Dr. Gordon, welcome back to this program, sir. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine, Tavis. How are you? If I complained, I'd be an ingrate, uh, just trying to keep my head to the sky, uh, as the, as uh, the elements uh, were singing moments ago. Let me, let me start with this, um, because, again, sometimes the dots just connect on this program in interesting ways, and I can't even predict it. We just had a powerful, a rich, rich, rich dialogue with Dr. Carol Anderson out of Emory uh, about uh, about the notion, as she put it, of blackness always being the default threat in this country. We discussed a lot of things in that hour. But that phrase just jumped out at me and I suspect those in our audience. And uh, we, we spent some time unpacking that, this notion of blackness uh, always being the default threat in this country. I wonder, for starters, uh, that's why I love talking to brilliant scholars like Dr. Gordon and Dr. Henderson. I wonder if you can link that notion to the extent you agree, and I'm certain you do, that blackness is always the default threat in this country. Um, can you link that to the notion of black nihilism, and then we can jump from there? Sure. Well, first, thanks for playing uh, Earth, Wind, and Fires, uh, <laughs> Keep Your Head to the Sky. I love that album, and I love that song. And uh, But, yeah, to, to connect it very di- directly, the basic point about nihilism is that nihilism basically says nothing matters. It doesn't matter what you do. And part of the project of this country has been to convince black people that nothing we do matters. Mm-hmm. And nihilism basically has to be distinguished between personal nihilism, uh, moral nihilism, and political nihilism. Now, the one we're really talking about is political nihilism. Because individualized nihilism yeah, usually culminates in a variety of things, but sometimes suicide. Moral nihilism basically says it doesn't matter if you're right or wrong. It's really more about the force that's placed onto you. And this is why in many legal systems, they're called legal positivist systems, it, uh, there's an appeal to the idea that the law will have to have you behave in a certain way because you're not naturally disposed to do so. But political nihilism, which is the one that black folks fundamentally deal with, Mm -hmm. that one is about making, creating a a permanent impasse to institutions of power. In 
other words, politics is about power and the idea, the fundamental premise of a lot of the organization of power in the United States has been devoted to the disempowerment of black people. Mm. So that basic insight is there, that blackness functions as a kind of default category. And it also functions as a category of projection. Because, you know, folks, folks today are unaware of this scale, the depravity, the violence, the level of just pure sadism as what, uh, of what has been done in the history of this country. And when people behave in that way, they cannot imagine the, the people to whom they have, um, or rather the people upon whom they have unleashed, unleashed such fury, not if they have the opportunity to be in power, releasing that on them. But that's pure projection because everything in the history, every indication of the history of black people in the United States has been a demonstration that black people are not motivated by hate. Just, I'm just talking about it as a group, mm -hmm. right? The individual black people who hate, but black people as a group, it's just overwhelmingly evident that black people have been motivated by notions of dignity, freedom, and love. Mm. So, that, so that projection is really a, a, a white projection, an anti-black projection onto black people and it functions as a rallying scare tactic. You say black people in power, you're endangered if you're white. And that's just complete falsehood. Mm. I am, um, I'm already uh, marinating and noodling on this comment <laughs> that Dr. Gordon just lays out. Um, so the first hour, I, I was stuck on this comment that blackness is always the default threat in this country. Now I'm stuck on this phrase that black people um, are not motivated by hate, but by freedom, by dignity, and by love, that deserves some interrogation as well. That we are not motivated by hate. Uh, black, there are some black folk who hate, there are some white folk who hate. But black people, as a race of people, I've said many times on this program that we've learned to love this country in spite of, not because of. In spite of, not because of. My friend Cornel West says all the time that he's uh, uh, amazed uh, that black folk, uh, at no point in this country's history, ever started their own version of a black Al Qaeda given all that we have endured, and he argues uh, <laughs> that when, when, when white folks see us walk in the room, they should just give black folk a standing ovation. When you see Negroes walk in the room, <laughs> just give them a standing ovation. That's, that's Cornell West. But in this hour, we join my Dr. Lewis Gordon and his frame that black people are not motivated by hate, but by freedom, by dignity, and by love. We will talk about that when we come forward on KBLA Talk 15. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now, it does indeed. I guess this hour is UConn's Dr. Lewis Gordon. As we talk about the notion of black nihil black nihilism in this hour, um, this uh, this idea that uh, denies the existence of any objective meaning or purpose in life. Uh, want to offer that definition for those who may have just tuned in. If in fact that's what we're talking about, Dr. Gordon, I, I start this conversation by asking you to connect. Uh, to link up this notion of blackness as a default threat, always the default threat in this country, said Dr. Anderson in our first hour. I asked you to link her notion with black nihilism. You did that. So now let me ask you to link these two things. Uh, if you are correct, and I believe that you are, that black folk are writ large are not and never have been motivated by hate, but by freedom, by dignity, and by love, link that uh, to black nihilism, this notion that many of us, too many of us have that uh, that anything we do doesn't really matter in this country. Well, well, one of the first things to bear in mind is that 
when we talk about nihilism, nihilism is symptomatic of something deeper. Wherever there's nihilism, there's decadence. Mm. And what decadence is, is when institutions are dying. Now, this is, this is a very serious issue to deal with because, on the one hand, we're dealing with the larger set of institutions that we call American society. And it is true within those, blackness is a default you know, term. But that's really about, about hegemonic white American society. Mm-hmm. But throughout, there's always been a kind of vibrant, creative black society and that is a highly creolized, mixed, and I say mixed mainly because, you know, we often talk about black folks in a very reductive way, mm-hmm. but black folks have always been a flow of interaction, you know, across the South, across the East or the West, North, etc. And this constant infusion of creativity, that is one of the things that have made uh, black communities alive. And that kind of alive set of values have taken forms in institutions ranging from churches to mosques, even synagogues, all the way through to community centers, all the way through to what we've seen in the histories of actions from not only the civil rights movement to the Black Panthers, all the way through even institutions like the Communist Party in the U.S. You know, that was 40% Black. Mm-hmm. So, so in other words, when you are not decadent, you're active, there's possibility. Now, nihilism, as you pointed out, really goes against the very idea that you can produce values and you can actually affect the society, produce change. Yes. And and one of the things that some people miss is that, and this is some of the things I talk about in some of, some of my writings and some of my books, is that black political action was never premised upon a need to know the outcome before the performance. Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, that is paradoxical, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. think about it. If Harriet Tubman had to know the outcome before, if Frederick That's Douglass right. had to know, <laughs> if Harriet Bailey had to know, That's right. nothing would have got done. Mm-hmm. So there's a paradox of, 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 of black existence that some of the commentators don't talk about. Because within that existence, there is something also extraordinarily unusual. And I'm just going to, because I know it's a short time, but... We got time. We got an hour, man. Take your time. Go, okay. ahead. Go ahead. Okay. There are basically four things, four, four uh, needs. And when you look at human beings, just human beings, the human beings have everywhere. Mm-hmm. Okay. The first need comes from our childhood. And it's, it's a pretty obvious one. It's safety. Right. When you're born, when you're a child, you need to be safe. You need to have food. You need shelter, all of that stuff. The second one is pleasure. You take pleasure out of life as human beings. It's over. Pleasure. Mm-hmm. Children like to play. Pleasure. But now the third, and now we're getting into the social realm. The third is value. Every human being needs to be valued. When you are valued by those you value most, it's usually in the form of love. But when you step outside of the private spheres of value, when you go out in the world, the way you want to be valued, usually at your job, in your community, etc., they're in the forms of respect and legitimacy. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, that's, those are three. Now, the fourth one is a more complicated one. The fourth one, and this is when we get older, mature, etc., is joy. Now, joy comes from being able to live a life that brings these things together. And this has been one of the mysteries of black people for many people who do not, live in or understand black communities 
Because if anything, what we know is black communities suffer a precarious existence in this country. In other words, the first element, safety, is, n- is, is, is not always at hand. Mm-hmm. Whether it's from the police force, whether it's from the, the, the double standards of the criminal justice system, all the way through even to what we see now with the effort to disenfranchise black votes. But despite not having that first one in place, it's always been a mystery that black folks have found affirming practices among one another. And this is one of the reasons why there's a long tradition in black music, for example, of, of the following story. There's a party going on. Everybody's having a good time. And you have to think about this, right? These, these go all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And then the cops come in and say, break it up. Now, this means that on on a fundamental level, this society is not at rest with the idea of the containment of the movement of black people around political institutions. If you want to colonize the mind of a people, you have to curtail their capacity to affirm the value of their existence. Mm. And and, and in fact, there's a great song by Louis Jordan in which a party was broken up and and the line is, And all the cops could find was ice cream and lemonade. (laughs) (laughs) So if we if we bring this to the wider political question, the wider the wider political question, as we begin to think about this, is, you see, political politics is not only about power, but power, both in the positive and negative sense. The negative sense is coercive power. Mm -hmm. The positive sense is power as the ability to make things happen with access to the conditions of doing so. And in the positive sense, it's empowering others to be able to live lives that are worth living. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so if a society is going to take its national identity as the absence of a people, despite the fact that that, that people, is right among others, are part of the lifeblood of how that country can have its vitality, we're dealing with something profoundly nihilistic in the sense that there is a fear ultimately of the future. And just, I know, I know you're going to have to go to commercial break, but just to give you a sense and we could come back to it. I could ask you, Tavis, when was the last time you had a conversation with someone? And I'd like all the listeners to think about this. When was the last time you had a conversation with somebody about the 22nd century? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Have you? I hear you. I take your point. Yeah. Yeah. And that gives you the severity of this moment. Uh-huh. Because you see, one of the things is many people need to have a sense of a possibility for the future for them to act. But what's unusual, particularly in the context of black people, as I said earlier, has been the capacity to act without advanced knowledge of the outcome. Mm. What what do you make then? Uh, this is getting rich. It's getting deep. Um, there are three or four things turning in my head. I'm trying to keep up with my with my own uh, thoughts. What do you make then first of the fact that black people, uh, while not having the evidence to be optimistic, have always remained a hopeful people? I want to get to black joy in a second, but you you got my mind going so fast. There's black joy and there's black hope. <laughs> Let me take hope first and then we'll get to joy. What do you make of the fact then that, that black people have been able to build 
frankly, our lives, everything that we've built has been built not on optimism, but on hope since you raised the issue of hope. Well, one of the things I've often pointed out is that pessimism and optimism are two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. And, And this is something people don't realize, because both require some notion, some position, on, out, on, on the outcomes. However, hope is a more complex phenomenon. Hope is, is connected to faith. Mm-hmm. And the thing about hope, there's this concept called infinite resignation. And what infinite resignation is, and this was talked about not by, by quite a lot of people. It was talked about by Kierkegaard, but it was talked about, you could find in a lot of black writings as well. Mm-hmm. And what that is, is when all the evidence tells you, right, that you will not win, mm-hmm. right, that it will not work out, mm-hmm. all the evidence around you. And so it leads to the paradoxical question, why then do you still act? Yes. And the answer is, is threefold. If it's in political terms, the answer is commitment. Mm-hmm. In other words, you've taken the position that there's something greater than yourself that's worth acting for. And we've seen this all the way in biblical narratives as well. In other words, Moses doesn't have to get into the promised land. That's right. But But the action needs to be done. The second one is connected to what we said earlier about love. And love is complicated here because, you see, there are two kinds of love. There is narcissistic analogical love, which is, I can only act if it's for somebody like me or if it's for me. Right? In other words, the idea I love myself the most. But there's another kind of radical love, which says there are there are people, things, ideas, things just so valuable out there that the action doesn't have to be for me, but ultimately it's for people I will never know, I will never meet. Mm-hmm. And we know this because every black person who is able to just say as he, she, or they walk around this country today that there are black people they have never known and had no way to know them whose actions were the conditions for us to be able to do what we're able to do today. Mm-hmm. And that is radical love. Yeah. And, then, and then the third part is existential. The existential political commitment is basically this, this point in which you're going, you don't know what will happen unless you do something. Right? There's, a, there's, a, there's an expression, you know, um, don't take yourself out of the game before you've even tried. Mm. And, and the thing about it, what I find extraordinary is, is, is the level of resilience there. And, and, by, and, and I'm not making the claim that all black people are this way. It's legitimate to get angry, to say, I've had enough of this. All of that is, is legitimate. But the point is that there need to be a sufficient number of people who have commitment to keep the struggle going, to get things done. And when that happens, the outcomes are such that no, you know, it's not what even they could predict. But what we have to understand is that every generation, as Franz Fanon said, will have its challenges and its mission. Mm-hmm. And that existential commitment is to say, look, uh, I'm, we're in new terrain, but we're going to have to do our part but that is more connected to hope understood as a phenomenon of faith. And it's paradoxical, because it's, it's not a hope that's a naive hope. In fact, it's a hope that almost appears hopeless mm. 
But it's paradoxical because we act nevertheless. And this is, this is, and there's so many examples of this. You know, you could find it in Harriet Jacobs. You could find it in Frederick Douglass. You could find it all the way through to certain present struggles as well. We, we've seen it in elements of Black Lives Matter as well. But the thing is, there is a constant effort to try to reintegrate it into the kind of, in the, in the kind of logic in which there are people who are saying, if I don't get my peace, then there is no point. Or the kind of logic that, that basically says these institutions are not for us, so there is no point. But there's another response. Of course, a lot of these institutions were not for us. The point is for us to try to build different kinds of institutions that would actually be a gift for everybody. Mm. And, that's a, and that's a whole other, other element of it. And, part of, and one of the things that we should bear in mind is that a lot of the efforts to, to disempower black people, to disenfranchise black people, if we talk about voting, but the, the overall project is connected to the fact that a lot of black issues are intimately connected to building that infrastructure for a more decent society. Mm-hmm. And in other words, the, the, a lot of the, 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 the needs, a lot of the concerns, if one were to look at black people as a people politically, those are needs and, and concerns that require the more pub, the building up of a genuinely public set of institutions that belong to everybody. Mm-hmm. But in a country in which there are people fighting for the privatization of power, yeah. then it's inevitable, even if they're not anti-black in, in, in their aims, right. to become anti-black in their outcomes. Mm. Um, put a pin in that. Um, I want to come to that notion. Um, but I, I, I'm still stuck on this <laughs> on this thought you laid out of hope as um, hope as hopeless uh, when hope is uh, hopeless. Uh, that deserves some interrogation. I'm thinking now of the, uh, the 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 Negro national anthem, the Black national anthem, "Lift Every Voice and Sing." Uh, the words written by James Weldon Johnson, the music written by his brother J. Rosamond Johnson, and that line in that second or third stanza that says that we had hope. When hope unborn had died, that we had hope when hope unborn had died. In other words, when hope got to black folk, it was still born. That's hope as hopeless. And yet black folk have built their lives on nothing but hope. And we haven't even gotten to black joy yet. It's getting good. We'll continue when we come forward. Dr. Lewis Gordon on KBLA Talk 15. Uh, Dr. Lewis Gordon, we were talking before news, traffic and sports about black people and this unique kind of hope that we possess over and against black nihilism, the notion which denies the existence of any objective meaning or purpose in life. And uh, Dr. Gordon made a powerful point um, that only black folk could navigate through hope when it was hopeless. And I raised the notion of uh, the Negro National Anthem, again, written by James Weldon Johnson, the music by his brother J. Rosamond Johnson. Uh, and that line that says that we had hope when hope unborn had died, which means that when hope got to us, it was already stillborn. And yet we have built a pretty remarkable, uh, we have a pretty remarkable track record in this country of being able to, uh, at our best, uh, make America live up to her best ideals. And this notion of black hope is always fascinating to me. We ain't got the black joy yet. We'll do that in a second. But what do you make, Dr. Gordon, of the fact that 
with all that we have endured, that black people have remained such a hopeful people, put it, uh, to put it the way you put it, uh, that black folk are not motivated by hate, but by freedom, by dignity, and by love. Well, one of the things that we should bear in mind is the notion of what it is to act because you must. And, uh, and when we talk about what must, what that must is about, the thing we should bear in mind is that nihilism, nihilism is always an attack on the idea of how you can be connected to another, to another human being. All, hum- all nihilisms privatize power, but all non-nihilistic activity are connected to what it is to be part of a community. And one of the things that matter, matter a lot for black people, is the idea of a community. In fact, the community idea matters so much that, that unlike many communities, even our convicts, even our people who have gone through situations of profound, what would be called social death or social degradation, are welcomed home. And that, that underlying understanding of what it is to affirm the humanity of another, that is how dignity is connected. Now, one of the things I could mention, just to give a shout out, is to a brother named Devin R. Johnson. He wrote a book called Black Nihilism and Anti-Black Racism. Mm -hmm. And in that book, he he makes a distinction between what he calls weak nihilism and strong nihilism. And weak nihilism is, is a lot like the, the ordinary double consciousness where you just basically just leave it at the system hates you. The system sees you as something negative. That's just what it is. You have no control over it. Mm-hmm. But, he, but what he argues as strong nihilism is when you say, I am not going to put my faith in that system, but I'm going to actively do something. I'm going to go out there and try to build despite that system. And at every moment, I'm going to affirm my lack of faith in that system, but my faith in my ability and my community's ability to act. Mm -hmm. And that part is linked into some of the questions of hope we're talking about, because that could only work if the hope had become hopeless. Mm. In other words, and there's a, and there's a very interesting connection between the word, the kind of, the kind of, the kind of faith and hope I'm talking about and the word truth. Because a lot of people don't realize that the word truth actually has its origin in the word faith. It's from the word tvath, which is an, you know, a very old Germanic word. But, but ultimately, it comes down to this. That truth is that in which you should put your faith. Mm-hmm. And, and, and at that moment, when we're looking at institutions that are failing, what one has to put one's faith in is the capacity to build institutions. And this is a tricky thing, because as we know, one of the things, you know, folks are always saying, yeah, but how are you going to build institutions when the house that you're living in is already very problematic? And I often have to remind folks that, you know, masters and slavers don't build houses. It's the enslaved people, the workers. Those are the people who build houses. <laughs> so we already have, so we already have that capacity. The problem isn't about building houses. The problem is that there are people who keep burning down the houses we try to build. Mm. I, I heard earlier when you were talking about the, 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 the Tulsa attacks. Yeah. Okay. 
And so there's a certain point if people keep burning down your house. There is a point I could see the frustration. You say, you know what? Uh, maybe we should just burn down the houses and then start building up some houses because these other people haven't developed their capacity to build houses to begin with. So this means that what we have to think about is something very different, which is how to have a, glo- a global collective investment in the game. And this is something where all over the place, not just in, the, in, in, in North America, because the kind of debates we're talking about right now in the United States, I was giving some lectures in Canada, and there were similar kinds going on there. A lot of people don't know the Canadian history of this, in, in these issues. And there are similar discussions right now in Brazil. Right now, the situation around Lula is linked to the question of its connection to black communities mm-hmm. and indigenous communities. That's right. And so, and, 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 and one of the things, I think, I think a sister who really, really hit the nail on the head with this was Anna Julia Cooper. Mm-hmm. She has this great essay, What Are We Worth? And one of the things she points out is that communities in whom little is invested but are somehow able to contribute more than their investment. That is something that gives a different understanding of worth. In other words, part of the nihilism is to tell black people we're worth less. But when we think about the skill sets we have, the capacity we have to work under adverse conditions, to deal with very little resources of investment, this means that there is a potential that we need to affirm, but not only in terms of the material infrastructure of a country, but we also have to rethink how our creativity can restructure the very idea of how we organize political institutions. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I, and I think that that kind of an insight is 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 a way in which we can transform nihilism not into a naive optimism but into a profound political commitment to do what we must. When we come forward here, um, I I want to um, come to this notion, come back to this notion that you raised a moment ago from the brilliant, the great Anna Julia Cooper, um, this piece she wrote entitled, What Are We Worth? I want to talk about what we are worth in this vein. Um, We've established in this hour, he has established in this hour, our guest, Dr. Lewis Gordon, that black people at our best um, we're not motivated by hate, but by freedom, by dignity, and by love. And I want to swing way out here and ask Dr. Gordon to then juxtapose for me this notion of freedom, dignity, and love, which motivates and animates us with black-on-black crime. Mm-hmm. As we say that part when we come forward. We, uh, continuing our conversation now with Dr. Lewis Gordon, uh, just uh, looking over some of my notes I was writing to myself um, to probe a little more deeply as we move through the rest of this hour. My time's getting away from me. Um, let me start with this, uh, since I teed, uh, teed it up a moment ago, Dr. Gore, and that is uh, your notion, which I subscribe to, uh, your claim, which I which I agree with, uh, that black people are not motivated by hate, but by freedom, by dignity, and by love. If that, in fact, is true, how would you respond to critics who would then point uh, to the notion of black-on-black crime? Well, there's several immediate things I would say. The first thing is the very formulation black-on-black crime. One of the basic things is the United States is a country, if 
this, this is a discussion that's used primarily in the United States. And the United States is a country that is already uh, fraught with profound levels of inequalities. It's also a country in which uh, there is legislation that pretty much offers the value of guns more than people. And within a lot of those frameworks, there's already uh, a double standard through which the appearance of crime tends to be more acute if it's in a person who is black than in a person who is white. So there are all kinds of activities by people who are not black who don't pop up into the discussion of crime that basically doesn't raise the question of just a basic fact, which is that people tend to get into conflicts with people around them. Mm -hmm. When I talked earlier, when I talked about pleasure and uh, uh, safety, value, and joy, one of the things I didn't talk about is when those things are disrupted in the form that leads to dissatisfaction. Mm. And this, this, is what, this is what needs, this is what calls for justice. In fact, I wrote a book called Freedom, Justice, and Decolonization about this issue. And the basic, the basic point is that dissatisfaction happens when there are, 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 are uh, disruptions in the mechanisms through which people have access to what enables them to, to bring those other elements together. Now, of course, there are always exceptions. They, we're, what, when, when we're talking about something like crime, uh, and, 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 and we're not talking about, say, simple property crime. We're talking about when people hurt people. Mm-hmm. Within a context like that, one of the things we, we, we have to, to, to separate is, 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 is questions of exceptions like, say, mental illness or certain other kinds of things like those. But now when we talk about ordinary people, what we have to deal with are how ordinary people may behave under extraordinary circumstances. And, and by this, I don't mean it to, at all to talk about excuses. Sure. What I'm just trying to say is that there are certain things that are normal that when applied to black people get exaggerated. Yeah. And, and I'm saying this because my entire childhood, I grew up, I grew up in, in what folks today would call the hood. And uh, I've lived, even in my adult life, even when as a professor in neighborhoods that some people would consider, you know, say crime neighborhoods, mm-hmm. and just perfectly fine. People who knew one another, greeted one another, people lived and created everyday lives that were perfectly fine. However, it doesn't mean that crime doesn't exist, but crime is a more complicated phenomenon because, especially if we're talking about urban centers, uh, and that would require a whole other sure. conversation. No, but but the management of crime is so linked to the behavior of the police that that it creates a kind of cultivation of an infrastructure of all kinds of conflicts that that take the form of what we call black and black crime. No. No, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, no, no. I take your point, um, and perhaps in our next conversation, we'll we'll get a chance to unpack uh, the urban crime issue that you that you're. Uh, kind of teasing um, uh, right now uh, us with. When we come forward in our remaining moments with Dr. Lewis Gordon, um, I 
Let me just say right quick, though, in our next hour, we're talking about black folk and mental health. He mentioned mental health. We're discussing that for the entire third hour in light of this young brother who was choked to death on a subway in New York City. In light of the brother in Atlanta who walked into the medical facility and um, killed a person and injured others, both dealing with mental health issues. We'll talk about black folk and our collective individual mental health in our third hour. When we come forward, though, in this hour, with the few moments that we have left, I want to get to this notion of black joy uh, with Dr. Lewis Gordon on KBLA Talk 1580. Conversations that matter. matter. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. This conversation does matter, and I've been delighted to have had Dr. Lewis Gordon on for the hour uh, to unpack so much uh, brilliance about the notion of black nihilism. Um, let me close in the three minutes I have left with this, uh, Dr. Gordon. Uh, several black scholars, of course, have argued that nihilism can actually be a source of empowerment and resistance by rejecting the dominant narratives and values of society. Uh, black folk can create their own meanings and own purposes and forge new paths forward, which leads me to close by asking how then uh, black joy is even possible in America, given uh, the nihilistic threat that we find ourselves facing every day. Well, the, the example you just gave basically has a term for it. It's called the transvaluation of values. And in plain talk, that means that instead of looking for value to be brought to you, you bring value to existence. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we should bear in mind throughout the history, even all the, all the way through from the period of enslavement, all the way through, through Jim Crow, all the way through to the present, there's something remarkable when you look at the history. If, if you look at black history as a story of the affirmation of our humanity through the transformation of meaning. And what I mean by that is not just something where we, we wax and wane about possibility, but I'm talking about everyday life. I'm talking about, for instance, even, even when we have modest access to food, what we do to food, in order to remind ourselves that we are worthy of the pleasure of enjoying food. We're talking about the fact that within what, what movement needs in black communities, the, ability, the idea that so many black people have lost our lives from taking a walk, right? Yeah. The, the idea that that's an affront to a society that wants to dehumanize you. But in the midst of it, this question of building meaning also takes other forms. It takes, it takes the form also through how we try to understand the different ways to live our freedom. There are many things people are talking about today, as, uh, as some scholars have been pointing out, just like, um, you know, my, my longtime friend Sadea Hartman talks about this, but there are others who do as well. Uh, you could find it all the way back from, you know, Lucy Parsons right. all the way through, which is that there's a, there's a world that tries to put a white mask on, and the white mask tries to create a, a very inhumane and inhuman fixed notion of what it is to live. Yeah. But in the black world, there is a, there's always been a connection of fluidity. There's always been, I mean, my entire childhood, there have always been queer communities. Yeah. There have always been ways in which we just connect across the spectrum. I, and that creativity... Oh, I'm sorry, you're running out of time? No, no I am. That, that last thought, that, that creativity, what? Finish that sentence. Okay. Creativity, what? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that creativity is there on a very everyday material level in, in terms of how we live meaning. 
Mm-hmm. And the, the the essence of it is in the blues, but that will be another conversation. But the blues is not <laughs> negative; the blues is positive. We'll do that. We'll do that next time. Uh, speaking of blues, he is a musician: jazz, blues, rock, reggae, hip hop. In addition to being an academic, uh, leading public intellectual, uh, teaching at UConn, where he's professor and head of the philosophy department, and that will not surprise you, given what you've heard from him this brilliant philosopher in this hour. Dr. Gordon will do it again. We'll pick, up, we'll pick up on those things that we uh, couldn't get to today, but I thank you for your time, sir. Thank you so much. And yeah, I'm looking forward for us to talk about the blues one day. I I, <laughs> I, I, I welcome that conversation. We'll make it happen. We'll, we'll weave in a lot of good music as well. Uh, for now, we thank Dr. Gordon for this hour. More when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580.